Good morning, church. I, I have to spend just a few more minutes every week now, now that we're all back, or a lot of us are back in person, and just spend just a few more seconds looking and appreciating all of you and enjoying seeing your faces and longing for the day when this room is full once again. So let me tell you, because it's been a couple weeks since I've told you that I love you and I appreciate you. I missed you very much last week. I'm so thankful uh, to Marcus Stinson for filling in for me on Sunday, Matt Mead filling in for me on Wednesday night as I was preaching for a little congregation in Missouri. I'm so thankful, so incredibly thankful for the talented and godly co-workers that I have here in this congregation. We are so incredibly blessed. So thank you so very much for being with us this morning as we continue this series about chasing the wind, looking at life, and becoming disillusioned with the illusions, becoming disillusioned with the things that we should be disillusioned about. I want to tell you a story. Some of you know that a couple of years ago, I went to the Scottish Highlands. That's always been something I wanted to do, and so I took a solo trip to the Scottish Highlands just to do some exploring and and look around, and I did some research before I went, and in Scotland, they have these laws that are known as freedom to roam laws. I just like the sound of that. Anyway, freedom to roam laws, which essentially means that with very few exceptions, you can go anywhere you want to. And you could explore whatever you want to. And I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make the very best of this, the very most of this. I'm only going to be there a few days. And so if I see a trail that I want to go down, I'm just going to go down it. If I see something I want to explore, I'm just going to explore it. If I see a mountain I want to climb, I'm going to climb it within reason. And, and so I'm, I'm just going to go wherever I want to go and do whatever I wanted to do. And, and there was a place in Scotland called the Isle of Skye. Just a beautiful place. And there's this, uh, this rock formation, beautiful rock formation called the Old Man of Store. You can look it up. So don't look it up right now. But there, there's this beautiful rock formation called the Old Man of Store. And I really wanted to see this. So I drove across, got up early one morning, drove across Scotland, got to the Isle of Skye. I could see the rock formation in the distance. I was getting excited about climbing this hill and seeing this rock formation. So I got closer and closer. And, and finally, I felt like I was at the bottom of the hill and that I could climb up to it. Nobody else really around, but I parked the car and it's always raining there apparently. There's so much rain and mist and it was cold and muddy, but I didn't care. I was going to do what I wanted to do and see what I wanted to see and experience what I wanted to experience. And so I started to climb this really steep hill. And of course, in Texas, we don't have anything like that. And so I wasn't used to that sort of thing. But And I was ankle deep in mud and it was just a trudge all the way up and the further up I got the colder it got the more windy it got the more mist and fog there was and so even the even the rock formation was pretty hidden from me but I just kept climbing and climbing and climbing there was no trail there were no signs there were no other tourists but I said I'm I'm here to do what I want to do and go where I want to go and be where I want to be and so I just kept on going up and the further and further I got up I, I thought where am I and what am I doing? And, and, you know, I knew I wasn't doing anything wrong. I wasn't in any place I wasn't supposed to be because freedom to roam laws. I could go wherever I wanted to go and do whatever I wanted to do. So I, I knew what I was doing wasn't wrong. But then it occurred to me, 
I'm in the middle of nowhere. I mean, nowhere. There was no cities around, no towns around, no villages around. I was really out in the middle of nowhere. And the only person who knew where I was was my wife. And she was halfway across the world in Texas. And nobody knew where I was. And I thought, I could, and I did fall several times. And I, I, I could get hurt. I could be out here in the middle of nowhere. And yet I kept going because I'm going to do what I want to do and see what I want to see and explore where I want to explore. But I just kept going and kept going. Finally, I, I turned around. I got about as high as I could get and got the pictures. I, uh, there was about as good as I could get. And I finally came back down to my car because I realized that while what I was doing wasn't wrong, it, it might not have been very wise, right? It wasn't wrong, but it might not have been very wise. Not to mention the fact that I got back to my car and I kept driving a little bit further down the road and I went around the next hill where I would have gone had I just kept driving and there was actually a trail up to where I wanted to go. All kinds of tourists making their way up that way and that wasn't the way I chose to go because I was going to do what I wanted to do and go where I wanted to go. But that question of is it wise when something might not be wrong, but it also might not be wise, that's something I think that we need to spend, as Christians, we need to spend a whole lot more time thinking about. We say, well, it's not wrong, but, but we still need to ask, is it wise, though? Is it wise? Is this something that we should do? And there's so many applications to that. One, in our own discipleship, as we seek to follow Jesus and be who we're supposed to be, we... We have to go beyond, is it wrong, with whatever behavior, with whatever attitude, with whatever words, with whatever thoughts that we're asking about. We have to go beyond, is it wrong, and ask, is it wise? That's true in our own discipleship. It's true in our parenting. For those of us that are parenting, we have to help our kids not just ask, is it wrong, but also ask, is it wise? It's also true in our evangelism. When we're trying to share the gospel with other people, we we aren't just concerned about a moral framework, what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's sin and what's righteousness, but also what's wise and what's foolish. Let me give you three reasons we need to go beyond asking, is it wrong, and also ask, is it wise? The first is uncertainty. Uncertainty, because sometimes we're uncertain about whether a behavior is right or wrong, even though whether or not it's wise is pretty clear. If you had stopped me halfway up that hill and asked me, is what you're doing wrong? I would have been like, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure I can be here. But then if you had asked, but is it wise? Are you, are you really being wise right now? The, the clear answer would have been no. So sometimes that's true when we're thinking about our own discipleship when we're thinking about our parenting, when we're trying to share the gospel with someone else, sometimes some behavior, we're really just kind of uncertain. Is it wrong or is it right? I'm not really sure, but is it wise? What are you accomplishing here? Is this really helping you to accomplish what you want to accomplish? What's the end of this road? What's the end of this path? Where's this headed? What's going to happen if you continue down this path? What are going to be the results of this? Is it wise? The second reason that we need to ask, is it wise, is self-deception. Because sometimes we convince ourselves that something is right, even though we know it's not wise. Sometimes we can deceive ourselves into thinking that something is right, even if we know that it's not wise. And the third one is apathy. Apathy. Sometimes we just don't care. I don't care if that's right or wrong. I don't care if that's a sin or not. 
but it, we might care that it's not wise. And so, again, maybe we're thinking about ourselves. Maybe we're thinking about our kids, and our kids say, I don't care if it's right or wrong, but do you care whether or not it's wise? Or maybe when we're sharing the gospel with someone and we're saying, hey, don't you know that this behavior is wrong? And they say, I don't care that it's wrong or I don't care that you think that it's wrong. But they might care that it's not wise, that it's not going to accomplish what they want to accomplish, that it's not going to lead where they want to go, that it's not going to turn out the way that they want it to turn out. So we have to learn to think beyond and ask beyond, is it wrong? And also ask, is it wise? It's good to ask, is this behavior wrong? That's good. Ask that question, but also ask, is it wise? Where's this headed? Where's this going? What's this going to accomplish? Is this really going to lead to the place you want to go? So we have to learn to ask Is it wise? And that's why I love the book of Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes is not just about morality, but also about futility. It's not just about, is this behavior right or wrong? As Christians, that's sort of the only framework sometimes we operate in. Is this right or is this wrong? It goes beyond questions about morality and gets into questions of futility or vanity. Is this going to last? Where's this headed? What's going to be the result of this? Is this really going to turn out the way that you want it to turn out? And that's why I think, especially in our day and time, the book of Ecclesiastes is a terrific way to introduce someone to the gospel because it goes beyond questions of morality and gets into questions of futility because even if somebody cannot recognize that the path they're on is wrong, they might be able to recognize that it's not wise. And sometimes that's even true with each and every one of us. We can't recognize that the path we're on is wrong, but we might be able to recognize that it's not wise and that Jesus introduces us to a better path to be on. So look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 1. Again, I, I don't know that there could be more of a relevant idea for our culture and our time and our context than what the preacher of Ecclesiastes brings to us. He says in chapter 2 and verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? That word vanity, Marcus talked about it last week. I talked about it two weeks ago. The word there, the Hebrew word is hevel. It's meaningless, it's vanity, it's smoke, it's vapor. It's, it's not only temporary, but it's also to some extent an illusion. And this is what he's going to talk about, is this pleasure and enjoyment that we're pursuing and we're chasing this enjoyment and pleasure and it's not only temporary and vanishes so quickly, but it's also an illusion. But we all have the tendency to chase it, don't we? And to say, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to feel what I want to feel. I'm going to experience what I want to experience. I'm going to explore what I want to explore. And we can almost touch it, can't we? It's right there. It's so, it's so tangible almost. It's right there in front of us. And we think, if I just did this, if I just go here, if I just experience that, then I will have happiness. I'll be satisfied. I'll be fulfilled. This is, this is life. This is the life that I'm pursuing. And we, we see other people seem to have it, 
and seem to be experiencing it. We, we scroll through Instagram and we see their houses and we see their cars and we see their life and we think it's right there. Why can't I have that? And the preacher of Ecclesiastes says it's, it's hevel, it's vapor, it's smoke, it's vanity, it's meaningless. He says, let's explore this together. Let's go down this path. Let's see where this leads. Let's check this out and see if this is wise. Look at verse 3. He says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now notice, he says, my wisdom is still with me. This isn't just unbridled passion. This isn't just a kid being a kid and just running amok and doing whatever he wants to do. This is somebody saying, I'm really honestly trying to discern and figure out whether or not this is a worthwhile pursuit, whether or not this is leading to and going to where I want to go, where people should go, whether or not this is life. Maybe this is what life is about. Maybe this is meaningful. Maybe this is what you should pursue. Maybe this is what people should do. Maybe this is how people should live, is just indulge yourself, just enjoy yourself, just do whatever you feel like doing, go wherever you feel like going, explore wherever you want to explore, experience whatever you want to experience. Maybe this is what people should do. And he says, I'm, I'm really trying to examine this. But notice a theme he brings out throughout the book is during the few days of their life. And that idea of mortality is something that's always before him because it's always before us. It's something we're always aware of, isn't it? I just have a few days here. When I was in Scotland, that's how I felt. I want to experience this because my time here is limited. I'm only going to be here a few days. So how should I spend my time? And we're aware of that in our own lives, aren't we? I'm only going to be here a few days. My life is short. I'm going to die this is going to end. I'm going to do what I want to do while I'm still here. In fact, we even call that the, the bucket list, right? I want to accomplish all of these things and experience all these things before I go. How should people spend their life? Maybe people should spend their life just, just having as much fun as they can have, enjoying themselves, indulging themselves, accumulating as much stuff, consuming as much pleasurable things as they possibly can Will that lead to life? Will that cause you to experience a meaningful life? That's the question before us because that's what humanity has always had a tendency to do. What is a worthwhile pursuit? Look at verse 4. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man." Notice as you go through there, all of the verbs, all of the things he says, I did this. What did he do? He says, I made, I built, I bought, I gathered, I got, right? I made, I built, I bought, I gathered, I got. 
I did it all. I accumulated. Again, there's nothing more relevant for our context, is there? There's no wisdom that is more needed in our context in the 21st century in the Western world than this. The preacher says, I tried it. I made, I bought, I I gathered, I got, I got all of the stuff. I enjoyed all the things. I consumed, I accumulated. For whom? For whom? Whom did he make and buy and gather and get? For whom did he do that? Himself. Myself, 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 myself. In these passages, four times, myself, 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 myself. And that's what we all have a tendency to do, isn't it? To consume for ourselves, to enjoy for ourselves, to gather for ourselves, to buy for ourselves, to build for ourselves, to make for ourselves. And he says, I did it. I I consumed, I accumulated I did all of these things for myself. I pursued all of my pleasures. Notice he even says that I bought and I got people. I bought and I got people, servants and slaves and concubines, singers. And even though our context may be a little bit different, when we pursue a life of pleasure, people become pawns and puppets in our story, don't they? When we pursue a life of pleasure, people become pawns and puppets in our story. We fool ourselves into thinking that they exist in our story to bring us pleasure. Even though we don't technically or legally enslave people, we tell ourselves a story that other people are in our lives to bring us pleasure, That's why you're here. That's why I invited you into my story is so that you can make me happy, so that you can please me. Sometimes we do that with our own family. Sometimes we do that with athletes. Sometimes we do that with entertainers. And we think, you're here to entertain me. I don't want to hear your opinions. I don't want to hear your thoughts. I don't want you to be a real person. You're just here to entertain me. You're just here to make me happy. When we pursue a life of pleasure, people become pawns and puppets in our story. But the truth is, the truth is nobody exists for your pleasure, right? Nobody exists for your pleasure. Nobody exists just to make you happy. They are real people too. But the preacher is exploring all of this because we do all of this. This is what human beings do. We accumulate, we consume, we chase after a life of pleasure, even to the point of accumulating other people in our lives saying, make me happy, do something that makes it be funny for me, sing for me, please me, make me happy. And and he's asking the question, where does this path lead? Where is this headed, this life of accumulation? This life of consumption, this life of pursuing pleasure, this life of accumulating other things and other people to make you happy, will it lead to the kind of life you want to have? Look at verse 9. He says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. He says, I work hard, right? What did he do? He said, I made, I built, I bought, I gathered, I got. 
I did all of this. I built, I made, I gathered, I got all of this stuff. I worked incredibly hard and I had a reward. He had a reward and his reward was his eyes got all that they wanted to see. His heart got all the pleasure it wanted to have and he became great. So he had greatness and pleasure and enjoyment. This was his reward. And human beings have this tendency to justify all kinds of behavior by saying, this is my reward. This is my reward. I deserve this. I deserve to be happy. I've worked hard. I've sacrificed a lot, and I deserve to be happy. In fact, there's a heartbreaking story of something that happened fairly recently. A well-known Christian apologist has found out that he had inappropriate relationships with many, many different women over the years. And one of the things was that he told himself and told them that those relationships were his reward for his service to God. And we have a tendency to do that too, don't we? To say, I deserve this, whatever it is. I deserve to be happy. Or even God wants me to be happy. God wants me to enjoy this. This is my reward for all the work I've done, for all the things I've sacrificed, for all my toil, for all my labor. I deserve to be happy. And we have this tendency to pursue all kinds of behaviors and lifestyles, make all kinds of decisions and do all kinds of things, some of which are questionable, some of which are undeniably wrong, but all of which are unwise. But we justify them because we say, well, I deserve to be happy or God would want me to be happy. I've worked so hard. But look at what he says in verse 11 as a conclusion. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He said, I got my reward. My reward was pleasure. My reward was enjoyment. My reward was greatness. And then I looked at my reward, and I looked at all that I had chased, and all that I had gathered, and all that I had built, and all that I had bought, and all of these things that I had. And what was it? It was heaven. It was smoke. It was vapor. It was meaningless. It was vanity. It was futile. All of it. It disappeared, and it was an illusion. We work so hard, we accumulate so much, we do all of these things and we say, okay, if I do this, I can have this. If I do this, I can have this. And we accumulate and we consume, but it's all smoke. And it, it never really satisfies us, does it? Again, as we said two weeks ago, we've never really had a meal and thought after we finished the meal, okay, I never have to eat again. That was it. I'm completely satisfied forever. Even if you did think that after you finished the meal, you said, I could die a happy man right now. About an hour or two later, you said, I want something else. We're always hungry again. No matter how pleasurable it is, no matter how enjoyable it is, no matter how satisfying it is for a moment, it only lasts a moment. And we also feel like and we realize that so many of those things that we chase and pursue, they're so full of hype, aren't they? They're so full of hype. They they never live up to their promises. There's always somewhat of a disappointment. 
And they're all temporary. They last a moment and then they're gone. And the preacher says, all of it, I've chased all of it. I've had all of it. I've pursued all of it. I worked hard and I had everything that comes along with working hard. All the toil, all the chasing, all the pursuing, all the seeking. I got all the rewards. Everything that you can imagine that you might think, I want some of that. That would make me happy. He said, I've had it. And it's hevel. It's smoke. It's vapor, it's meaningless, it's vanity. All of it is a chasing after the wind. And this is why Ecclesiastes is the perfect introduction to the gospel because Ecclesiastes helps us become disillusioned with worldly things while Jesus helps us become enamored with heavenly things. Then we see that this is necessary. If we're going to appreciate the gospel, then this is necessary to become disillusioned with worldly things so that Jesus can help us become enamored with heavenly things, so that we become disillusioned with pleasure, so that we become disillusioned with indulgence, so that we become disillusioned with consumption, so that we become disillusioned with accumulation, so that we realize that all of these pursuits are heaven. All of these pursuits are a chasing after the wind. I know we're running out of time, but 1 Timothy chapter 6, I would encourage you to read that whole chapter. I wish I could read that whole chapter for us this morning, but let's read a few verses. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, and he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. He's not just promoting contentment. We've had a a surge of things like minimalism or essentialism, contentment. And that's good. It's good to be content. But just contentment isn't what Paul is preaching. It's godliness with contentment. It's godliness with contentment. Not just contentment for contentment's sake, but contentment with godliness. That's great gain. That's the life. That's the life that's really meaningful. Look at verse 9. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, pierced themselves with many pangs. They plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. Pursuing pleasure is not even in your own best interest. I know it seems that way, but that's the illusion of it all. It seems like if I just had this stuff, if I had a bigger house or I had a nicer car or I had better clothes or I had this, whatever this is, if I had that lifestyle that other people seem to have, then that would be the life then I could be happy, then I could be satisfied, then I could really leave a legacy, then I could whatever. None of it. None of it not only brings the happiness and contentment that we're pursuing, but we, we also plunge ourselves into ruin and destruction through this craving, through this desire, through this love of money. It's the craving, it's the desire It's the love of, it's the passion for all of these things that plunge us into ruin and destruction. You don't actually have to be rich to plunge yourself into ruin and destruction. You just have to want to be rich. You just have to desire it. You just have to chase it. You just have to pursue it. 
But then he contrasts that, verse 11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. This is the way we take hold of that which is truly life. Paul wants Timothy to understand and wants Timothy's audience to understand that this life of pursuing pleasure and accumulation and consumption, this is not life. Not only is this not life and it's heaven and it's vapor and it's a mist and it's an illusion, but you're going to plunge yourself into ruin and destruction by going down this path. The path that leads to life is the way of the cross. The way of the cross is the way of the wise. The way of the cross is the way of the wise. The way of the cross recognizes the brevity of life. The way of the cross recognizes the inevitability of death. The way of the cross recognizes the the hevel of worldly pursuits. The way of the cross is generous and selfless and sacrificial. The way of the cross is filled with hope. The way of the cross is the way to life. The way of the cross is the way we live forever. And so if you want to live forever, if you want to take hold of that which is truly life, if you want to build a substantial life, if you want to have a life that's really meaningful and isn't vain and futile, then take up your cross and follow Jesus. The way of the cross is the way of the wise. Because these other pursuits, they plunge us into ruin and destruction. And people all around us, Even our secular friends are are recognizing that, aren't they? They're recognizing that these pursuits are not really meaningful. Living a life for my own pleasure is, is futile. But then they're searching for something. But what can I latch on to? What can I believe in? What can I anchor my hope in? And we can share the good news of Jesus with them. That the way of the cross is the way of the wise. That when we're baptized into Jesus, it's not just the life that we're giving up and saying, I'm not going to pursue the life of vanity and futility, vapor, but I'm going to pursue the life of Jesus. I'm going to pursue the way of the cross when we're raised up from that water to walk in that new life and then to share that good news with others. So if there's somebody here this morning and you're ready to pursue the way of the cross or get back on track, in the way of the cross or be encouraged in the way of the cross. If there's any way we can help you or encourage you, one of our shepherds would love to visit with you at the information desk as together we stand and sing this song.